Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This conversation was recorded live at the Plan-Based World Conference and Expo in June 2019. The title of the panel was The Strategic Plan to Reduce Animals from Our Food System, featuring Chris Kerr, Chief Investment Officer at New Crop Capital, and Chuck Lau co-founder and chairman of Stray Dog Capital. Let me say this before anything else. This was one of the most enjoyable and impactful conversations I've had since I launched this podcast. That's obviously saying a lot because I've featured many really passionate and successful individuals in previous episodes. What made this really interesting for me is that Chuck and Chris have the perfect balance of passion and smarts. They lead with their hearts but it is pretty clear that they are also two of the most insightful and knowledgeable investors focused on the emerging plant-based foods industry. I love talking to people like Chris and Chuck because not only do I learn a lot from such discussions, but I also walk away even more passionate and energized to change our food system. So why did I decide to chat with Chris and Chuck in the first place? Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably at least know that plant-based foods are having a bit of a moment right now. Investors have funneled more than $17 billion into U.S. plant-based and cell-based meat companies in the past 10 years. And investments in plant-based dairy and alternative proteins represented one-third of overall food investments in the year 2018. What makes Chris and Chuck true pioneers is that they were investing in plant-based foods before anyone was focused on this space. This conversation dives into the early beginnings of humane investing nearly 10 years ago and what drove Chris and Chuck's first investment decisions. But by no means is this chat limited to the history of how we got to a point where plant-based foods are now the fastest growing subsector of the food industry. Chris and Chuck also share their insights on the current state of the industry and provide advice for entrepreneurs looking to raise investment as well as share their thoughts on the M&A outlook for the near future and predictions for the segment in the decade ahead, plus a whole lot more. If you are even remotely interested in the food industry or plant-based focused venture capital investing, or what's next for plant-based and cell-based foods, or even learning about how a few passionate individuals can take steps to change the world, listen in. I'm Neil Zacharias. I, um, I run a platform called Eat for the Planet, and um, it's also a podcast. 
and hence this is a live podcast recording. And I'm joined here by Chris Kerr from New Crop Capital and Chuck Lau from Straight Out Capital. Um, two people who if you don't know, you will know hopefully very well by the end of this conversation. Um, from my standpoint, Chuck and Chris, and from what I've gathered, and I've done a lot of research, uh, you both have been very instrumental in a big shift that has started to happen in how we view using the power of um, markets and investments and technology and food to bring about a positive change in the world. Um, and I, and perhaps people don't know enough about how you were instrumentally involved in this process. And so my goal today is this is not a typical panel because I'm going to dive a bit into both Chuck and Chris's backgrounds. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of the pressing issues um, that are happening right now in the world of um, plant-based food as well as the potential future for cell-based meat and, and other cultured food products. Um, but it all kind of comes out of a passion, and this is what I've understood about both of you. Whatever you've done so far in the investment world as it connects to food and innovation has been tied into a passion you both have for animals. And hence, this is probably the only session in this whole conference that has the word animals on them. Um, <laughs> It's nothing to hide. There is a plan to reduce animals from our food system. Um, and it is a worthy effort. And if it wasn't for people like Chuck and Chris, we wouldn't have made it this far. Um, so I do want to make sure that we, we, I want you to talk freely. And I want you to dive into whatever you care about and why you do what you do. And of course, we'll get into the tactics of investments and the future of the plant-based space, which I'm sure many people are interested in. Um, but let's start off with, with both of you. I know, as I said earlier, both of you got into this, um, this world, so to speak, because of a passion for animals and have been involved in the animal welfare space tangentially or directly for years, even before people heard of plant-based products and even before Beyond Meat IPO'd and the whole world changed. Uh, at what mo when was the, tell me the moment when both of you, maybe it was the same moment or separately, realized that markets and technology and food and innovation can be a pretty instrumental um, vehicle to bring about change for the betterment of animals. Where was that idea born? I'll, all right, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. And, and I, and I want to start first and foremost by saying there's a, we have a huge team at Stray Dog Capital. Uh, a lot of them are here this week, you know, this weekend for this event. Um, and we're very excited about it. And this has turned out to be so much more uh, than we anticipated. So kudos for the movement uh, for pulling this together and making this happen. And I know you had a big part of that. So, so thank you for that. Um, Straight on capital, in all frankness, would not exist but for Chris Kerr. Um, we, uh, he is the OG of humane investing. There's just no doubt about it. Um, uh, and yes. 
I, you know, so uh, Jennifer and I have been vegan for uh, over 13 years, and um, uh, all for uh, as uh, in, on an ethical basis. But it wasn't until I joined the board at the Humane Society of the United States in 2013. Um, uh, I sat on a committee called the Invention, Investment and Pension Trust Committee, uh, and, and a portion of every one of those committee meetings was uh, a presentation from uh, Chris Kerr. And Chris Kerr would bring to HSUS, who literally, because of Chris, was one of the early investors in, in humane investing, uh, and he would bring investments to the committee. Um, and, and we laugh about it now, but you know, it, you, as you can imagine, a committee like that is very conservative with its investing because it's investing donor dollars and it wants to be very careful. Um, and the conversation usually ended with me saying, hey, Chris, I don't know where we're going to land as a committee, but Jennifer and I will invest in that. Uh, and, and that's how it really got started. Um, we then you know, formed Stray Dog Capital, uh, and the rest, as they say, is, is history. But, but ultimately, it all came back to uh, he, uh, Chris making us aware of it and, and really try, starting to think about how uh, investing could be not replace our activism, but be a part of the evolution of our activism and, activism and a supplement to that activism. So that's really how we got started. That's giving me too much credit, I'll, I'll say. But um, I'll start by saying this. Uh, I was on the wrong side of history pretty much across the board, um, pretty much on everything. And it wasn't until my wife came along, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, who started uh, our relationship by asking a lot of questions or asking me to ask a lot of questions. Uh, I grew up on a farm. My very first job was cleaning the udders on cows before they were milked, seven years old. I've had animals in my life, my whole life, um, but there were two different sides of where animals fit in that. And so when Kirsty came around, um, it was, you know, she had been vegan at that point for 14 years. I'd been vegan for zero and was not all that interested in it at the time, but I was very interested in her. And um, so it became like I'm, 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 I like to be a student of change. Um, I thought, well, if there's questions to be asked, I'm okay to ask him, and particularly when such a pretty girl is asking those questions. So when I started looking at, okay, well, how, how could I approach the world a little bit differently? Um, I don't like animals being hurt. I don't need cruelty. We don't need any more suffering in the world. So if I could play a role in that, great. Opening up those eyes, was, that was a tough time for me. Um, it, became, it was harsh. It was a harsh way of, of entering. It's like being reborn to some degree. And I thought it was very frustrating. What I wanted was to change my own behavior. I wanted to desperately change my own behavior and how I ate. Um, it was very hard to do it. My aspirations and my abilities, there's a big chasm between the two. I very much wanted there to be less suffering in the world and I very much wanted a grilled cheese sandwich. And I hate to say it, but that's literally what was happening. My, 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 my id was taking over. We make decisions around food that are very much driven by that moment. There isn't a big philosophical discussion going on around the world when all I really wanted was a grilled cheese sandwich. Um, I'll say that if I'd been an artist, I'd be painting artwork about animals. If I'd been a lawyer, I'd be an animal rights activist or lawyer. If I were a lobbyist, I'd be doing animal rights law, but I was a business guy. And so I thought, this is the only tool that I really know 
So what can I do with it? What can I, how can I put that to work? Um, and solve what was also a crisis for me, which was I really did. I wanted to eat fun food. I wanted food to continue to be fun. I think about food all of the time. I mean, I love food. So how is it that I want to have this long-term sustainable behavioral change, not compromise my values, and yet still live a kind of a happy life? And so I think around 2002, I became vegan. I can't believe she agreed to marry me before I became vegan, but she did. Uh, I went vegan while we were engaged. And after that, she and I had decided uh, as a team that we were going to um, take um, investments that I had done in the past and we were going to apply them, apply that, those, the, the, the trade to this side of the equation. I'll tell you one thing about what I learned in the business world is don't go to, don't go to anybody with a problem. Go to them with a solution. You go to them with a solution, uh, they'll likely grab onto it. You'll go to them with a problem and they will fight you on it. And I just thought, we've been trying to change hearts and minds in our movement for 50 years. And you can change a heart and a mind for a little while, but it won't stay that way unless you start giving some people some answers. And so literally, Day of Cheese came about. It wasn't even named yet at the time. Uh, Tall Ronan and I flew out there, um, had this product, and we thought, okay, I can have a grilled cheese sandwich, and, and that started it all in motion. So I went to work for the Humane Society. Uh, luckily, the leadership there at the time was looking for solutions. You had guys like Josh Bulk who were actually fighting a really hard fight there, trying to go to corporations to get them to try new products, but the, the things that they were working on weren't all that good. Um, we thought, okay, let's see if we can bring some solutions to the equation. And there was luckily a lot of entrepreneurs out there who had great little ideas and thought, well, maybe we can do something bigger with this. So a wonderful conversation. It's, this is very true and in a, in a, in a, an important part of our story is uh, we were raising money from Yoko's Kitchen. And um, I had never met Chuck, didn't know what he looked like, but there was somebody who had just joined the investment committee. And I said, I really want to go into Miyoko's Kitchen. We want to fund this thing. We're going to be the lead. And Chuck said, with everybody else on the phone, it wasn't off to the side, he said, yeah, uh, HSUS can go in and whatever, whatever round is left, uh, Jennifer and I will take the balance. And I just thought, who is this man? <laughs> this is fantastic. I have an ally. And um, so that, that was really the start of, of that. And again, it comes back to, you know, use the tools that you have and uh, help people with transitioning to behavioral change. Sorry, that was a monologue. No, no. <laughs> So if you want to sum it up, a summary of that is, thanks to Chris's love for grilled cheese sandwich, we now have two big and <laughs> prolific venture funds backing almost every new good food startup that's launching. I can't eat a grilled cheese sandwich every day, so we do try to do <laughs> so other things as well. you diversified now. Yeah, so companies like Beyond Meat came about through that process, Hampton Creek, uh, Miyoko's was in there. Uh, these are really fun times, and I have to say, Food is fun. It should always be fun. And uh, yeah, it worked out well. So about, so say, 10, 12 years ago when all of this was starting to happen, um, I know Beyond Meat story seems like it's a startup that came out of nowhere. And now it's, everyone's, it's a darling on Wall Street. But it's been a 10-year-long overnight success, right? So it's been a while since they started. Uh, back then, there were no impossible foods raising 300 million. I mean, Beyond Meat was one of the few new companies innovating. I guess Hampton Creek at the time was the an another one that came about. So what data was there to support that this was something worth um, putting money into? <laughs> um, was there any data 
What, so, because today when people are making investment decisions, you can go to any of the other panels over here today, people are talking about, I heard someone say, oat milk grew 400% in the last year. Um, that's a good data point now. Um, mm -hmm. But there weren't any such data points 10 years ago, I'm presuming. So as investors, as people looking to use business and impact, it's great if you love grilled cheese sandwiches and you want to support plant-based businesses, but if no one buys the products and there's no proof of market out there, you're probably going to fail. So mm -hmm. did you just make a leap of faith? Did you, I don't know, have a crystal ball? <laughs> uh, well, there certainly was no crystal ball. Um, I think in large part you hit it, and that is it was a leap of faith. It was uh, we believed so strongly in the the idea and the concept of, of using the capital markets as a solution to drive incremental change, if not a revolution in what we were doing, um, that we, that we uh, made at, in large part or, or in the early days emotional investment decisions, not data-driven investment decisions. Uh, whether it was because you liked cheese or you liked Miyoko, um, you, you know, we made a decision to, to back something that turned out to, to be great. I mean. Um, Miyoko's Kitchen is a great, great story. The the Beyond Meat story is uh, great. There's there's dozens of them, and there'll be dozens more. And it's, uh, I think, in the early days, there was no data to support it. It was all about, uh, for Jennifer and I, just, um, you know, we'd had some good fortune in our lives, and we, and we were at some level blindly investing our our money, and uh, it was time to start uh, investing our money in in investments that matched our values, and that's. That's really how the evolution took place. It wasn't because we had done some deep dive analytical analysis and said, uh, we're not going to get into that. We're going to get into this food thing. It just it didn't happen that way. It was yeah. really very emotional. Yeah, we had one data point, and it was silk. Silk soy milk yeah. set, literally set the stage for everything that I tried to convince people of. So we had, at the time, you had a couple small companies. The natural product space was very hot right up until about 2006. There was a lot of mergers and acquisitions happening. The markets collapsed, um, but Silk Soy Milk, which is at that point a, almost a 30-year-old company, uh, 20 years in, White Wave invented Silk Soy Milk. Ten years after that, um, Dean Foods invested actually at the 20-year mark. But it started getting a foothold, and you were looking at a, a, an industry that was about 70,000 years old, people drinking milk, that had now started to shift. So at that point, you had about maybe 1% of the market had shifted. But how it was being consumed had changed. Where it was placed, what it looked like, what the cartoning was like, how did, the, how did consumers relate to that brand, where was it merchandised, where was it positioned. So that was the one best thing that we could point to, and it was a, just an astronomical success, and it got even more successful to the point where Danone bought it for $12.5 billion. Um, I was impressed when it was at about $35 million, which is uh, when, when Dean Foods came in. That... We used that as the economic marker, mm. saying, look, if we can mess around with, with just the dairy aisle, just with people who are lactose intolerant, we don't have to rely on just people's love of animals. There's lots of reasons why people might want to change their behavior. Those levers work for everybody. Consumers win if they don't get a bellyache when they drink milk. And so we started looking at how we could take advantage of some of that, looking at what consumers were looking for and try to feeding, feeding those. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um no easy way to respond to that, except that um, to some extent, you may not have had any data points besides a small one from Silk, 
Um, and as you said, you were making emotional decisions mm -hmm. for investments. But what you probably inadvertently did was set in motion a series of events that has created what we've seen in the last 10 years. Uh, and you know, to be fair, you amongst many other people mm -hmm. who had similar motivations, inclinations, who started companies around the same time. And here we are now about 10 years later. I don't think anyone could have predicted any of this in the last 10 years. I mean, as recently as I would say six or seven years ago, uh, people frankly thought um, it was, this was a very tiny market and it was going to always stay that way and that anyone, you know, me included, I, I quit my career in, in media and technology and turning vegan made me do that, um, <laughs> made me because I had no other choice then. Uh, and everyone told me I was, was insane to do that. And it's in, in some way, ways, the, I was telling people earlier today, the Beyond Meat IPO, not that I was directly involved in any way with Beyond Meat, but um, was, uh, was some retribution because a lot of my old friends from the tech industry who went and got jobs at places like Uber and um, you know, were predicting this massive IPO for Uber <laughs> around the same time instead Beyond Meat is the darling of everyone now. Uh, and no one even, until a few years ago, most of them didn't even know Beyond Meat existed. So how do, what are you most surprised by? I mean, the first point is you don't even realize you've, you've had this invisible hand behind working that led other people to then start companies, whether it's seeing someone like Miyoko, who I would say is an emotional investment, but also a very data-driven one, because yeah. she succeeds at most things she does, <laughs> almost everything. Yep. Um, but looking back now, now that we're here, June of 2019, a month after Beyond Meat dominating headlines everywhere. And that's just one example. I don't yeah. want to make this only about Beyond Meat. There's numerous examples of companies that are doing fascinating things. Many who people may not even have heard of yet, but are going to be the next big thing or you know, get acquired by someone really big. What surprised you the most about what transpired in the last 10 years? Hmm. <laughs> um, it, it's hard not to answer that question by using the two words beyond meat again. Uh, I apologize. Um, uh, because uh, you, a few years ago when, uh, when Beyond Meat went to market and you could buy it in the grocery store in a Whole Foods, um, the first thing that we did was say, you know, first we tried it. We said, wow. And then we said, now I got to get all my meat-eating friends to try this and say, hey, look, veganism isn't so weird. Taste this thing. It tastes like a burger. And they all went, wow. I didn't, uh, you know, and, and all of that was started to really vindicate what we were doing and, 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 and really started us to say, hey, there's, Beyond Meat is just one example, as you said. There are dozens of others all of which, um, and this is a gigantic market, it's a, it's a multi-trillion dollar market that we, that, and there will be a lot of opportunities. It's not gonna be Coke and Pepsi, you know, beyond and impossible, although it feels like Coke and Pepsi right now, um, but, it, but it, it will evolve, and, um, and there will be uh, significant opportunities for many entrepreneurs, and I think the, the realization uh, that, that Beyond Meat, um, it, in, it manifested in Beyond Meat was, that we are not wasting our time. This is real and this will be, we, are, we, we can uh, implement the change we wanna see by supporting these companies 
and giving them the capital to get out of the gate and go beyond their kitchens or uh, their garages and uh, into co-packers and, and ultimately into their own production and make it happen. Yeah, I think I'm most surprised that the meat industry showed up. Like, you know, we there's a long time where where they were adversaries to our cause um, and what we were trying to work on. And the fact that they showed up and said help us was a very unique moment that happened in the last two years. Um, the people who've been fighting this, like my wife, for decades, those had to be incredibly frustrating times. It's arguably perhaps frustrating to some of them that people like me work with those same adversaries. But these are companies that, you know, Nestle's 150 years old. Even the, even the, the youngest really big food companies are in 50, 60, 70 years old. Um, we need them, right? They are the footprint. We put fuel in, uh, in a car as an investor and try to get it going a little ways. But we need real fuel, and so we need that. The fact that they showed up and showed up in spades is really unique. Did not see that one coming. No, that's Didn't fair. Didn't see it coming. Yeah. And so here we are now, right? We're in a new sort of age. Um, we have the very fact that we have this expo is a sign <laughs> of the times. Um, we we di didn't plan it this way, but it turned out pretty well. Um, that it, it tells you that uh, the space is big enough um, where there's new brands being launched every few weeks or months at this rate. There's accelerators, there's incubators, and there are several new uh, traditional venture funds, both from the technology world and beyond, that are now looking at what's happening in the plant-based food space and also what's happening and going to happen soon in cell-based meat, and we'll get to that in a bit, and thinking, well, we don't want to miss out on the next Beyond Meat now. Right? And so increasingly, I'm hearing about a lot of traditional venture capital money that would typically go to random tech investments. And I say random because 99% of them fail. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm seeing maybe this is a safer bet, better bet, one which can not only make an impact in terms of um, a return on investment, obviously, mm -hmm. but also uh, finally can live up to the Silicon Valley mantra of we want to save the world. Mm -hmm. You can actually save the world by investing in these companies. So the reason I bring that up is now, does that change your investment thesis a little bit? Because you've got you know, Stray Dog and, and New Crop Capital and several other early stage investors, some of whom are in this room, um, as part of the Glasswall Syndicate that work together to invest in mission aligned companies, plant-based and cell-based. But now you've got all this other money coming in from traditional VCs who would never look at these companies, mm -hmm. say, even five years ago, with some exceptions. Um, how does that change your outlook now? I mean, you started off, as you said, emotional-driven investment decisions, um, want to fund companies that you believe in. Now many other people want to fund the same companies, perhaps not for the same reasons mm -hmm. as you do, but it's still money and it still helps. What's different for you both now as you look ahead as your sort of outlook, investment thesis, your next funds you're going to raise, where's the focus going to be? Why do we still need a Glasswall Syndicate? <laughs> well, first of all, Glasswall Syndicate really got its founding uh, because we wanted to expand the universe of investors uh, in this space. Um, there, was, uh, you know, th there was a small group of us 
Uh, Two of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple others uh, in the early days that, that were doing some investing as well. Um, but we wanted to figure out how to, to broaden. We knew that there were a lot of uh, mission-aligned investors and, and, and people that wanted to um, create impact with their money. Um, and we wanted to be able to bring them together in an environment that, that uh, hadn't, been, hadn't created yet um, a sort of limited partnership type arrangement. Uh, and, and Glasswall really is a large uh, investment club with a mission focus. Uh, it's right now, Glasswall uh, is uh, 140 investors, uh, trusts, individuals, VCs, foundations, um, and uh, led by uh, a, a woman named Macy Marriott, who has done a great job in really b- bringing that group together and, and make it using technology and sharing due diligence and um, sharing legal services and things like that to really um, make it easier for folks who who maybe can't write giant checks but want to put what they can behind it um, and, and, and do it with others who are like-minded. So it's really created, and it's, and it's now evolved beyond that to we have working groups that are doing, um, looking at philanthropy and, and animal testing and diversity and inclusion and things like that uh, as a subset of, the, of Glasswall. So it's, it's now evolved from investing to this community of, of investors who are, are going beyond just uh, the investing side. And uh, that all arose out of the early discussions when it was New Crop and Bruce Friedrich trying to um, start GFI and, and um, running his first uh, uh, presentations by us in a conference room in San Francisco and, and Josh Balk being brutal, uh, brutal with him uh, in the feedback for, that, for those early presentations. Um, Bruce deserved it all, uh, but uh, and, he, and I, I'm only saying that because he was supposed to be sitting here, so I want him to hear the presentation and realize that I, we abused him during the during the discussion. Um, we, we are twin brothers. I'm his older, fatter, dumber brother, but uh, it, it's uh, we are twins. Um, it, but it is uh, no, it's it's really Glasswall has turned out to be a fantastic uh, mechanism, and and in large part because of the great the team that makes it happen every day. Yeah. Syndication is, is, is actually a venture capital term. I'm sure they use it for lots of reasons, but it's what you do when you don't have enough money to take a whole round. So if you're raising $2 million, I can only put in 250000 I need to get my buddies around. So when, we, when uh, New Crop Capital was started, literally the very first phone call I made, this is a true story, was to Chuck, who hadn't heard from me since I left the HSUS, and he said his exact words were, is this Chris Kerr? Is this the Chris Kerr that's, that has left the universe for the last year? Where have you been? Um, and I said, Chuck, we're putting together a little fund. We're going to need more than what we got if we're going to change the world. Uh, will you do deals with me? He goes, yeah, I just, I just hired Lisa Furia. Uh, let's make sure that we work together. So that's how the syndicate started. Um, I never quite thought it would get much bigger than that. Maybe four or five um, investors would be interested. Uh, but the way a syndicate works is I like to think of it as an old car. Remember the old cars you had hand, hand cranked to get going? That's what we do. Like we are an old... Like no one's as old as you are in this room. Yeah, nobody yeah. knows that that actually happens. Yeah. But you basically, no, real big investors don't want to do that hand cranking. They don't want to push the car to yeah. get it going. They don't want to push it through the mud. Uh, they don't want to twinker, t- t- mess with the engine to see if it works. That's what we do. And our job is to get it onto the highway so that the rest of the work is just fuel. 
right? And that's where the big money comes in. But that early stage work is very hard. It takes a village. You can't, it can't just be what is little old Chris Kerr knows, who's very little. Uh, what can we do to bring on people that actually have breadth of, breadth of experience? So some people are good at marketing, some at merchandising, some at law. That's how you create the syndicate that creates that value. The money is actually secondary tertiary to the whole thing. I say tertiary because I like to use the word, makes me think I'm smart. Yeah. Um, but really, money is oftentimes one of the least things that matters. Uh, it's actually the talent. Who do you know? Who can you introduce me to? And so that's really... So from a perspective of a, of a food startup, if there are any in this room, or someone who's thinking of starting one after coming to this event and thinking, you know, maybe I can do this... Um, I think going to glass walls and or, or approaching the Mission Align investors that that you represent and that are part of the syndicate, uh, you're getting way more than just the the money that you would get from any traditional investor. Um, and of course, since you share the mission, assuming the founders and the, the the entrepreneurs behind those startups share a similar mission, you can obviously work together to to grow those companies in a manner that doesn't compromise. Um, their values and, and what they've originally set out to do. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's the part that's, that's kind of important. I know the original question I asked was more like, does this change your focus? Because now you've got more people with maybe more money coming around and trying to mm -hmm. get in the game. But I think you kind of answered the question, which is what you offer is, is, is what you offer, which is something different. Mm -hmm. And it always has been. And, uh, and for companies that are looking to raise another round, if they approach you with that same approach as they would approach any random, mm -hmm. I don't mean to say random in a derogatory sense, but someone maybe who isn't, you know, doesn't lead with heart first. Mm -hmm. um, they, they may have a different, a difficult ride down the line. And you've been through the trenches of many companies, including Miyoko's and Beyond Meat, and all have had their ups and downs, um, which may seem like success on the surface, but there's a lot that goes on to make that even possible. Am I correct in, in kind of making that assessment of where your strengths still stand true? Uh, and the reason I say that is because I've actually heard, I won't name names, uh, I've heard some um, entrepreneurs tell me that I'm just, I'm not even bothering with the vegan mafia of <laughs> investors. I'm just going after traditional VCs. And I was like, oh, okay, do whatever you need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, so first of all, new crop capital, certainly not me. I'm not the one who anoints winning companies. Like I've made yeah. plenty of misses. I've called the wrong shots many a times. I literally make decisions around what tastes good for my palate. Um, are you in the right market? Uh, we are not the validator of all deals. For anybody who wants to go out there and start a company, you shouldn't give a shit what I say. You should go out there and, and do it, first of all. Um, our secret sauce is that we, are, we do come from principle. Um, We've been using this system. We did it with all of the early companies, which is we had a network of people that were strategically placed around the globe. Um, some of them inside corporations. You had guys like Derek Sarno and Chad Sarno that were Whole Foods. Day and Beyond Meat got started in there because I called Derek and Chad and said, hey, can you get this into Whole Foods? Boom, you've got it launched. We did that because in our world, it's a call to action. We have early adopters that actually say, I like that. I like what you're doing. I'm going to travel a great distance. I'm going to pay more and I'm going to support you and I'm going to talk loudly about your, your company. That call to action comes with a value system 
that we can never violate. That's why we have such strict mandates around, around what our companies are allowed to do. If we're going to ask these early adopters to work for us to help these companies provide and proliferate, we cannot compromise those values on them. Those same early adopters will turn on you and you will hear it. And we've seen that happen as well. So our secret sauce is to make sure that we're always kind of following that mantra, right? Stick with the program, know your brand, never violate the principles of your early adopters. And with that, you get a proof of concept. A proof of concept that fits inside our early adopter world is a proof of concept that can go global most of the time. That's what the strategic investors are now looking at. So whether that's a Maple Leaf and Greenleaf, whether that's a Tyson, whether it's Nestle, they're all looking at that proof of concept. But we need to hold our values straight in order to get that proof of concept off the ground. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to kind of pivot the conversation into um, more of a where do we see things in the next few years. Um, I think we all kind of agree that the investment climate is frothy, and I'm using that term to sound smarter than I am because I hear <laughs> finance people using it. Uh, everyone's it's a great word. Get, it's yeah, great it's word, great, yeah. isn't it? It's like, yeah. Well, anyway, we won't go further into that. <laughs> I was trying to make a connection with food, but it was starting to get gross. Yeah. But uh, so everyone's looking ahead, and now the next five years are going to be pretty exciting, at least next five, maybe beyond. Um, a lot of new startups entering. The, the space, many of you are funded by, 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 either, by the Glasswall Syndicate and many other firms that are now uh, involved in early stage investments. Many companies that are, say, five, ten years in, I won't say many, it's quite likely some of them will be acquired or at least get some really good offers from, from big food companies like Nestle and others who are all looking at this market. What are your general sort of predictions? Let's first start with M&A activity. Um, your best guesses or where things are going to go in the next few years mm -hmm. with this excitement? You know, I think, uh, first of all, I don't think our space is any different uh, than any other venture capital space in that uh, we have the, the, the spectrum of, we have the Grand Slam, we have um, you know, a small number that will fail, uh, and others that will struggle to get our money back, uh, and then others that will be singles and doubles and triples, and, and so we're, we're not any different, even, even at this early stage. And, and our job is to continue to try to foster that, to keep that spread of, of outcomes uh, roughly the same. Obviously, try to push them more towards grand slams. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, the, 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 the exits now, because Chris said it earlier, the biggest thing that surprised him was uh, how, how big animal ag uh, entered and entered relatively early and quickly, um, earlier than we anticipated, and the, and the momentum they can create by uh, both big food and big animal ag starting to pick up um, these entrepreneurial entities that are, that are still at the early stage of their life cycle and, and use their distribution, use their channel, um, uh, you know, their shelf space, use their uh, distribution channels, their supply chain um, to, to really help these, these entrepreneurs accelerate. That would be a win for the movement uh, in, 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 unquestionably. And so I think we'll see that. Uh, I think we'll see some consolidation. We've got 
40 plus, maybe almost 50 clean meat organizations out there now. Um, just a few years ago, there were five. Um, there was one uh, just a few years before that. And um, so some of them will go through that spectrum. Some will be home runs, some will, some will fail, some might consolidate. And so I think, I think the natural order will take effect here in this segment just like it does every other segment. Yeah, I think I've been through three market corrections in my life. They're ugly every time. Um, and at the end of the day, for each of those companies that survive, they have to implement really good business practices. Uh, you need to get down to fundamentals. We can't rely on just venture capital funding these things for forever. They have to be prepared to turn and, and run as a good company to survive those economic downturns. We have a whole generation that hasn't been through that yet, including this whole Silicon Valley thing that's happened in the last 15 years. Uh, 10 years, um, that w- that's, that'll be a scary moment for me, to be honest. And I, my, you know, my fear is that markets change, people decide to go elsewhere, things dry up, and you've got good companies with really tasty products that might disappear when they shouldn't. And uh, you know, my hope is that we, we really look at some of these companies, put good principles in place, and make sure they can survive through the, through yeah, the ages. I, I think that's a very, very crucial point you, you raised there, because sometimes people from the outside of the space or at least bystanders or, or supporters or fans of these companies and their products don't understand for good reason they shouldn't they don't have to they just have to enjoy the food they don't understand the the harsh realities of, of scaling up a, a food company like you can build an amazing prototype in a kitchen made out of really obscure ingredients great and I'm sure it, you can be making the next big uh, plant-based or cultured egg or cheese. But now when you're taking that, maybe you even convince some investors to give you a seed investment of maybe a million or something, and you get going. Now scaling that and producing that and supplying it to retailers across the country and across the globe and producing that at an industrial scale and being able to maintain the integrity of that product as it scales and get the right ingredients at the right price is what I'm, I'm guessing a lot of companies, is that the biggest challenge you see besides, of course, market forces that you can't control, is how worried are you about, or do you, I'm sure you think about this, about a lot of these young, um, very passionate entrepreneurs with great talent even, um, running into some of these challenges and not being able to overcome the humps that Miyoko's and Beyond Meat and others have all managed to and it's been pretty hard at times for them to. Um, do you think there's going to be a market correction because some will just fail at no. production? I think you'll actually have some supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. So I don't think about this much, but because my wife is a lot better person than I am, she thinks three or four layers deep. So she handles intersectional policy for our we're a family company. She handles intersectional policy. So we're going to invest in a, a new cheese that happens to use coconut oil, she's the one that makes sure that that doesn't end up creating some human or animal crisis somewhere else in the globe. So I think we're going to be looking at things like that. So it's not just, is this a great pudding, but are we using childhood slavery to then produce the chocolate for this pudding? Like, let's actually think a couple layers deep. We need less suffering in the world. It's not just animals, it's everybody. So I do think that we need to look at these companies that are tiny in the grand scheme of things. Beyond Meat is still tiny. Mm -hmm. If that were to become... 20% 20% of the, of the global population or the global meat in the world, we'd have, a, we'd have a crisis somewhere because of an ingredient in there. And I think that's the type of thing that we need to start thinking about and how great that we get to think about that. Yeah. 
because we've always been such a rounding error that it never really mattered. Yeah. Right. And, and remember, a lot of people think that an IPO is the end game. Yeah. You, know, you work hard, you get, create a great product, you have innovation, you make, you make a great pitch, and somebody comes in and says, let's take this thing public. And there's a big splash, and everybody says, wow, that's neat. Look, they, uh, these guys all got rich overnight. Um, when in fact, it is, the, it is actually the beginning of the, of the road. And it is the, it is the highest level of transparency and accountability that you will have in, in your business career. And it, because uh, markets demand transparency, they man, man, demand accountability, and because it, it trades uh, on a minute-to-minute -minute basis, uh, one false move and you can tank your business. And so it is the, uh, it is the beginning, not the end, and it is the ultimate form of transparency. So, so uh, you know, I, I like to tell people, um, uh, you know, going through an IPO is great until you become a public company. You know, and, then, and then it's like, oh my gosh, now what do we do? Uh, and so it, it's just, uh, you've got to think of it as, and, and, and I think beyond meat now, out in the open, for all the world to see, taking a company that was losing money and continues to lose money, and that's okay, it, they're investing in that business, uh, now forecasting a trend to the end of the year to, be, to, to rapidly grow their revenue and become EBITDA neutral or positive and cash flow self-sufficient is a huge validation and a huge motivator for all of these entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just the transparency of it is going to be another round of motivation for them. Yeah, I mean, you can all you already see that. You can listen to the earnings call and yeah. and hear Ethan talking about why they're going to keep getting better and succeed, and why the competition and mm -hmm. Nestle doesn't worry them. And I think it, the fact that you have so many eyes on this industry, um, it tells us that you know we're finally at a point where I'm glad we have so many eyes in this industry mm -hmm. because it's going to now. Um, make the cream rise to the top. And I think there's going to be a lot of companies, and it's just how it is with any industry that are not going to make it through. And, and it's okay, some will get acquired, some will just shut down. Uh, and we've got to hope that enough of them will succeed. And not everyone needs to go public. That's not the right route for every company either. And many, I think, will intentionally choose to stay private so they can be more impact-focused even, in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're going to have a good mix of, of, um, of businesses in the space. Um, there's a lot more we can talk about that, but I want to make sure I don't um, miss out on this one question about um, cell-based meat, because I know the focus largely in this conference is plant-based, not because cell-based isn't happening, it's just because it is very early right now and it's still at the research phase, really. Um, while plant-based companies are much, a lot mature, have a very different set of problems mm -hmm. and, and challenges that they're facing in the market right now. What is your best outlook for cell-based meat or cell-based products um, when they will reach um, scale and price parity? Like, what's the best case scenario based on the companies you're very in I'm, intimately involved? I'm not in? that smart, but I don't honestly. Last year, I, no. I don't. I don't know. No? Yeah. I don't know. What I do believe is that there will be. Um, different phases of it, where you'll be able to use cell-based meat as a flavoring. So you'll be able to blend it with plants. It'll give you that last mile of flavor that you need, um, last 12 inches uh, from your plate to your mouth. Um, I think that the Achilles heel in the plant-based meat world is the filet. And so we can't seem to get over that hurdle. Uh, I think 3D printing can probably get us there. We're working on that with fish, with Blue Nalu. 
Um, I, I think it's going to happen faster than I believed it would because that seems to be how I've been getting it wrong this whole time. Um, I believe that if industry shows up, they will speed this whole thing up, and they've showed up, and that's another big surprise. I didn't think anybody would come to plant-based meat or to the clean meat world, and they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for Merck to show up, that's a big deal. Eighty percent of what creates plant or uh, cellular meat is is the media you feed it, just like an animal. Um, so for Merck to show up and, and invest in this space, that was that was pretty unique. Uh, you got industry there, so if it's going to happen, it's probably going to happen in the next ten years. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a, a range of predictions, as you can imagine. The CEOs of the uh, cell-based companies are all very, um, you know, very bullish on this. Um, and um, it's, it's uh, and I think for just, and it's all justified. I actually think there's a, I, I have a vision that I think hopefully um, will, will not necessarily be the end game, but will be a very healthy transition path. And that is, um, by the time clean meat, cell-based meat, whatever you want to call it, um, is can scale, can get to the cost parity uh, or close to it, and can scale, uh, plant-based meat will be so far ahead. I mean, it will, it, and we will see so much innovation on the plant-based side that that cell-based meat, frankly, is going to have its it, it, you know its work cut out for it. But um, there are, there is a subset of the ninety-seven percent of uh, the world that eats meat that says, I'm not going to eat plant-based meat. I'm not going to eat you know, a- any of this V stuff. Um, uh, I want meat. Um, and some of those will even say, I'm not going to eat cell-based meat. And uh, to me, the, the, the vision would be uh, we have sort of the pie split into three, three pieces, uh, that, that both plant-based meat and cell meat are, are occupying two of those quadrants in that, in that pie. And that, that the impact on big animal ag is to drive that production, that animal protein production, back to small and family farms. And that, that if we end up in a place where um, uh, we go back to farming in the 50s, uh, with strong animal husbandry, uh, and, and I'm not—I don't eat meat. I'm not a fan of eating meat, but but I'm, I'm, I'm visioning a world where that pie is split um, into three pieces, and we've got the opportunity to bring farming of animals back to a very small scale and and get rid of factory farming altogether. If that's what clean meat and plant-based meat do, that to me is—I mean—that's a victory for this planet and and all of humanity. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to make one last comment, and I do want to open it up for a few audience questions, if there are any. Um, but I just want to make this comment, and, and, and I knew I came into this conversation very excited to talk to both of you, and I think I shared that with both of you. Um, and you know, lately, with the success of a lot of companies in this space, with the push towards um, market-based solutions, which is working out pretty okay so far, um, we forget the importance of um, the individuals and the power that individuals can have. And although we are all kind of embracing this idea that meat eaters are embracing plant-based meats and down the line those that don't embrace plant-based meats will eat cell-based meat or clean meat, and more people are buying almond milk and oat milk this year than they were last year, and that's all really great and amazing. But none of 
most of these things, I wouldn't say none because I'm sure there are some exceptions, most of these things wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for passionate individuals, also happen to be vegan, that were able to make emotional, passion-driven decisions, you both included, and there's many others, including Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat. I know we keep talking about them, but who, who got into this for completely the right reasons. He's an animal lover and cares about the environment um, and wanted to make a big impact. And that's the way you start to start a food company and that's the way to do it. I, I think it's important not for us to remember that sometimes we can get so caught up in the numbers and, and changing, you know, how do we change the way seven billion or eight billion people eat? And we forget that sometimes if you can change one person even, they can go on and become a Chris Kerr or a Chuck Lau and and you'd be sitting here today. <laughs> it's like you teed that up for me. So I refer to my wife as the butterfly. Uh, if any of you know uh, the chaos theory, uh, butterfly flaps its wings in Africa and it becomes a tornado or a hurricane uh, on the East Coast. Well, that's her. She, she is the one who focuses one at a time, one conversation at a time. She's been doing it for 30 years. On occasion, um, She's also the tornado or the hurricane, I might add. Uh, we all are. We all can be the butterfly. We can all be the, the, the hurricane. And uh, it is. It's one person at a time. And uh, if you focus on that, it allows you to sleep well at night and be a little bit sane. Yeah. And I also think I'm, I aspire for the relationship goals that you both have. It's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, I want to give some time for questions. We have about 10 minutes, and I say 10 minutes only because at 5 o'clock there's beer and wine in the Explore floor from 5 to 6, so I don't want us to be stuck in here if you'd rather be out there. <laughs> but if people have questions, we'll take some questions from the audience for the next 10 minutes. There's mics on either side. Feel free to come up and ask something interesting, or not interesting. <laughs> I'll tell a joke. <laughs> Hi guys, thank you so much. This was awesome. Um, <clears throat> my question is, what are some white spaces that you see where you'd like entrepreneurs to move into that you're not seeing right now? If you could wave a magic wand, what are some spaces that you'd like to direct entrepreneurs to move into for innovation that's disruptive? Well, you want me to go ahead? Well, first of all, I just want to say, that's Liz D, everybody, okay? I mean, that, that, this, this is a member of Glasswall Syndicate and one of the pioneers of this of this movement, so so thank you. Um, and uh, it, we talk a lot about um, seafood, uh, really trying to accelerate the the innovation on the seafood side. Uh, uh, you know, nine billion land mammals a year in the U.S. I've seen the numbers are just uh, trillions uh, as far as uh, uh, sea animals in it, and it's just. Um, and it's all hidden and dark, and and and, and we talk about uh, we talk about the uh, you know the slaughter of animals being. By the way, Glasswall Syndicate. We have to attribute it because I don't ever want Paul McCartney to sue us. Um, uh, the, the Glasswall came from uh, his quote that said that if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we would all be ve uh, vegetarians. Um, and so that's why we called it Glasswall Syndicate. Hopefully, he has enough money that he's got other things to do and he doesn't sue us. Um, but. Uh, that that um, uh, uh, pork, um, uh, 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 turkey, um, and then ultimately I'd love to see, uh, and we've done some work 
at Straight Out Capital with, with PETA and, and um, Stella McCartney, matter of fact, um, on wool. We'd like to see a vegan wool solution, um, in which, you know, that, which I think would, would really alleviate a lot of suffering there. I think it's important how you look at white space, first of all. White space isn't just, is a product existing somewhere on the planet, but is it serving me locally, right? So um, we work on what's called the food pack, price awareness, convenience, and taste. And we use chefs to get a really good taste, but lots of chefs, lots of, anybody can make a good tasting product. It doesn't mean it's available everywhere. Uh, you need to be aware of it. It needs to be priced right and for the love of God, make it convenient. And right now, our biggest white space, I'd say, is in convenience. You got Derek Sarno across the hall over there. Um, he put his Wicked Kitchen line into Tesco. That was about convenience. It was chef-prepared food, ready to eat, grab it, go, walk out on the street, eat it as you go to work. That wasn't existing. And that entry shifted pretty much the entire UK in about 18 months, 12 to 18 months. Uh, that convenience is the trend of the future. So the white space is off, oftentimes around the convenience side of it in geography. Uh, you can have a phenomenal product here in the United States, but if you can't get it in Europe, you can't get it in your little cafe in Paris, you can't get it in Brazil, uh, those white spaces are critical. Animals suffer everywhere. They don't just suffer in the United States and in Whole Foods. So by all means, spread the love <laughs> wherever it's needed and look at white spaces from a demand standpoint. Well, and, and, and one more thing to pile on there. The impossible, their introduction of the Whopper into St. Louis of all places, St. Louis, um, speak, I mean, it's like the belly of the beast. We're in Kansas City. St. Louis is not very far away. Um, and, and, and literally, it is meat country. Um, so they put the Impossible Burger, uh, uh, put that brand on a Whopper and serve it there. It's so successful that they now are launching it market by market across the country. That, to me, at, at, a, at a price point above the Whopper. Um, and to, if we can get that and the, that, that proof point then with a product that is at parity or cheaper, and ultimately it, it, it will and must be cheaper than, than meat because we don't have all the work that has to go into preparing the meat. We can just take the plants and turn it into food. What a concept. Um, and ultimately that, that to me proved that this, this will happen. And whether it's impossible there or beyond somewhere else or, or no evil foods or others that are out there um, doing the same thing, it to me, it's going to happen. You have another question? Hi, I'm, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, I was wondering if there are any obstacles or solutions to any obstacles that you're uh, seeing right now or anticipating that are not related to the uh, release of a new product, but instead focused more on food systems and delivery. So are there any obstacles that are not product-based that you would look for solutions for? In yeah, terms of I, the global you, transformation. Yeah, I mean, you just think about how food moves. The reason that food takes a long, a food company takes a long time to grow because food is slow. There's a lot of moving parts. If you look at the cost of moving food from literally planting a seed into your mouth, the, the logistics in there is massive. So uh, clearly, there's a lot of ways of making that a more efficient. We actually think that plants is probably a heck of a lot more efficient than going through a cow and a farm and everything else. But I think logistics are going to be a really big issue. Um, uh, making plant-based meat, you know, good catch, it's actually an ambient product. You can tear it open, eat it on a plane. It's one of the first products that's plant-based meat that you can actually eat on an airplane without cooking it, right? Uh, that's, that's part of 
the eating process. I think if you look at the process of eating from the starting to the ending of eating, uh, of growing to eating, um, there's lots of inefficiencies in there that definitely need to be looked at. I don't know if that answers your question. And I think we also need to, to look at um, our food desert challenge. Uh, we, we, uh, this is, a, this is a movement of white privilege right now, and, and we need to move it into the communities of color and try to um, open up uh, food alternatives, protein alternatives, uh, into those communities that aren't getting that food. So that, that is another challenge, another last mile challenge that we're going to have to figure out. We're going to have time for one last question um, because we have two minutes. Um, thank you for the very thoughtful panel. Really appreciate it. Uh, question actually, since you touched on the impossible's price point, same thing with Beyond Meat and a lot of the meat alternatives, they are higher than your meat alternative. And part of the reason is the subsidies that go into meat and dairy industry. And that's a big obstacle. So what do you see, you know, what kind of time frame do you see that, you know, that policy changing and what can, you know, we do as a community to influence that? Yeah. I, it's, a, it's a big question because those subsidies come in a bunch of different forms from different rules for laborers to farm laborers. Um, that could be 20 to 30 year project to get that to work. I think once we start getting a little bit of a groundswell in this place, you'll actually see the meat industry kind of switching form around that, the seafood industry doing the same. Um, I, don't, I don't have an answer for it, but there are people that are studying it. I don't know yeah. what you have. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly important question. There are significant unfunded negative externalities that, uh, that the, the big animal ag enjoys now that, um, that I've heard it described is we have, we now have a runner in the race. So we have our plant-based solutions are now out and, and, and we're trying to um, drive the adoption of plant-based alternatives. Uh, we've got clean meat coming, um, uh, but the race is not even. There's a there's a there's an unlevel playing field. It's it's like a, a dump truck on a on a downward decline that we're competing against, um, and we have to level that playing field and and make it an even race um, and drive and, and force big animal ag to pay for their own unfunded externalities. And and that's you know there are people that are worrying about that and trying to figure and solve for that. Um, and I believe it will happen. And I believe having uh, the runner in the race that we have now. Um, will be part of that. Will be part of that evolution. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Chris. Can I make one yeah. final statement? Yeah, sure. I don't want anybody up here thinking that that me or Chuck are responsible for the success of these companies. Like, just to be very clear, these entrepreneurs are some of the hardest working people you'll ever meet. They deserve all of the credit. We fuel it. We support it. Uh, we love that support system, but. The truth is, we're like art collectors collecting good, good, good art. Um, they do the work. And I just, if, when you guys meet a founder out there, show them some love because uh, this is a hard space to be in and it's really nice to know that uh, these, these uh, people are working as hard as they are. I, I thought you were saying that Kirsty was the one who drove all this. That was it. That too. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for the questions. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's E F 
www.ftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.